Hello, everyone, and welcome to From Tip to Tail, a podcast dedicated to animal welfare. This podcast is sponsored by Cuddly. Cuddly is the only crowdfunding platform built specifically for animal welfare organizations worldwide. I'm Bridget. And I'm Sydney. We've spent years working with animal rescues and have seen such amazing innovation, strength, and heart. Having this personal connection with rescuers has made us more informed, grateful, and inspired. We hope by giving you an inside look, you will be too. Today, we're going to be speaking with Megan Driver, the founder of Saving Animal Lives 24-7, an organization that's dedicated to rescuing the mistreated, loving the abandoned, and saving the injured. It's been incredible to see just how much work Megan and her team do. So with that said, we really wanted to bring her on to discuss all things rescue, from adoption processes to compassion fatigue to responsible rescue. If you like this episode, please be sure to click that subscribe button to listen to similar stories. We are so ready to get into this, so let's get started. Hey, Megan, how are you? I'm doing good. How about yourself? So great. Really wonderful. It's another great week. I don't know how things are on your end. I mean, it probably another, I don't want to say challenge. So let's say opportunity after another. Definitely opportunities. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so we're so excited for this because I know we've been working with you for a little bit here. And honestly, like you've just been such a great partner and we love your success story just as an organization yourself. But rolling back the clock a bit, have you always been just a huge animal lover and involved in animal welfare? Or how did you really get into this? Actually, no, I was not raised to love pets or respect pets. My parents never allowed me to have one. The first pet I ever owned was as an adult. And the first realization I came to that I knew I wanted to do animal rescue was one day on my way home, someone ran over a dog in front of me. And it was the first time I had ever witnessed anything like that. And I pulled over and picked him up and brought him home. And my hubby was like, what are you going to do with him? I don't know, but you got to do something. You can't just leave him there. He was a black lab and his name was Lucky. And he was my first official rescue. And we took him to the vet and got him cared for and everything. And I was hooked. I was like, this, this has got to happen more than I know. I, I didn't know this happens. And after that, I started watching for it and it became more of an addiction where I was just, I got to save them all. I got to save what I can, whether they're on the side of the road. And then I started learning about our local kill shelters and kind of educated myself about what really goes on for normal people that don't know. And it just took off from there. I mean, it started with him and we just started picking him up off the road. It's so bizarre, right? It's like when you get a car and suddenly you see that car everywhere. When you see one of these animals, suddenly it's like they are everywhere. Suddenly they're all over your social media. They're everywhere you turn. And it's like, were you just walking by these all along and you just never noticed? It's very surreal. <laughs> so it sounds like, I mean, getting involved in kill shelters is really just like trial by fire, right? Like that, that sounds like a big jump. It definitely is because here in South Texas, where I'm located, every shelter is a kill shelter unless you're a rescue. So unless you're a nonprofit, you know, 501, every shelter in cities in our area, like just our area, you have Victoria, 15 miles up the road, you have Edna, 15 miles up this way, you have Quero and all three are kill shelters and then go 15 miles. There's another one and there's another one. And it just, all of them. And some of them don't even have social media or networking purposes or websites up or anything to where you can actually see the animals available. So to get kind of educated about the smaller shelters in South Texas that don't have that and the animals that just don't stand a chance because there aren't people that work them was very interesting to learn that those have always existed. And you just don't know about them until you get your foot in. And then it's overwhelming, of course, because there's so many. Yeah, I know too. Like, So we've been getting involved in HOSS, the uh, the American Pets Alive program. And I know they've been saying that too. It's like some of these shelters, it's like they barely have an email. Don't even ask about social media. Like it's, it's a bizarre thing. And it's like, so they've been working kind of on an island, unable to connect and save lives by like networking and transport and doing all these other different things. It's it's heartbreaking to realize that all these people have just been like in their own bubble, not knowing that there are other resources out there. Right. So it sounds like you must have like a bunch of like just amazing partnerships then that you've developed with some of these shelters. So I do work with a lot of the local shelters. I would say most of my animals are going to come from 
off the streets or I get the call from my vet. It's going to be the animals that other rescues will not touch. I don't care that they have heartworms. I'll pay for the treatment. Nothing to me is ever too broken. And I know some people take that with a grain of salt. We've received a lot of backlash with that, especially with Gina, who was ran over a couple of times by different cars. And I mean, her entire body was broken, her spine, her back, both legs, her pelvis, all of it. But my vet was very confident that we could fix it. And so he calls me, the person that brought her in said they couldn't do treatment. And he says, but Megan, we can save her. Will you do it? And pretty much just is asking me, will you pay for it? <laughs> but yeah, so we get those calls at least once a week about those that are seven, $10,000 dogs that can be saved that others just won't do. And so I like those. And those are definitely my favorite. I like to fight for the ones that won't get that, you know, with other rescues or other people in the area. They just don't stand a chance. Absolutely. And I, I love what you're saying too, because I think it is such a pain point that a lot of people have like a certain threshold, right? That they're like, well, I think it makes sense to pay for an animal's medical care up to a certain point. It's so subjective because I also think too, I mean, we've seen so many animals who have had a ton of medical care and then they've turned around and become like an icon for the rescue and a source for education. So they're doing good. And it's like, so that animal becomes this huge vehicle and it's like, okay, then is a certain dollar amount worth more? Or does it mean something that it means the world to one individual? I mean, it's such an interesting thing that people are willing to do that when it's like, hey, this animal could become the world to one person or be like instigator for change for a whole community. So, I mean, I think it's a really important point. And I know (laughs) we see a lot of that as well on our end. That's why we're so happy to work with rescues like you that are like, listen, like if there's a chance, if it's not going to be unreasonable and cause this animal like so, so much pain and suffering, then yeah, let's do it. Let's give them a shot. It was like Gina, you know, her initial video that we aired on Cuddly was literally five minutes after she was brought into the vet and she's in her kennel just crying because she can't move and she really wants to move and she's in so much pain. Well, they had already medicated her at that point, but you got to think she has almost her whole body broken, even with medications, you're going to still feel pain. And so I try to explain to people, that's a lot of our cases. They're still crying and they're still hurting. I've had bone cancer. I can be maxed out on morphine and still fill the tumors. I mean, that's just, that's how it works, but you have to get past that little bump. And sometimes it's a little longer, but Gina is the most happiest dog ever and adopted and loving. So in Colorado and Am I supposed to tell her, hey, by the way, um, about 40% of people said we should euthanize you because you were in so much pain, but look at you now. It was worth it, right? You would have wanted those surgeries and you would have wanted the help since we could give it to you. I think that if we could legitimately ask after putting them through that, what they would choose is they would choose to go through it because in the end, if it's quality of life and you know they're suffering, I understand that. I can come to closure with that and be there for them. But if there's that chance, I mean, it can be a very small chance, but if it's there, I want to give it to them. Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I know you saved Gina in the midst of this past year, which has been quite a doozy. A year. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Truly. Truly. So I'm wondering maybe if you could tell us how your year has gone, if there's been like any real changes for you and and how you've been getting through it, basically. It's kind of crazy. When COVID first originally happened, there was the scare, and then everyone started working from home. So people interested in adopting and fostering just skyrocketed. I mean, like overwhelmingly, everyone was interested. They wanted to know more. But the reality was we had a reality check and say, this isn't forever. You might be working from home now, but we have to be realistic here and understand that you you can go in and commit to a dog now, but you got to think about your future. And so that was kind of the initial problem we ran into with a lot of people. Well, I'm home now, but I don't know how long I'll be home. And then obviously with, with the past year and the uh, pandemic, the donations have kind of fallen as well. And so a lot more people out of work and a lot less people are involved on that end financially. 
So we've taken a hit there. And even though adopters and fosters have become more interested, we didn't really take them all on because again, when we're going through that process, we want to make sure you understand it's it's lifelong and it's not just for the next six months or three months or whatever you're going through in your life with the pandemic, it can change. And so, yes, we've had more interest, but with the, the financial and the donations, it's definitely fallen a lot for us in the past year, but our intake has not decreased whatsoever. If anything, we went through a couple of months ago, kind of a increase on owner surrenders because people were losing their jobs. I had people lose their homes and reach out. And then just a month or two ago, when we had that deep freeze in Texas, I had people lose their homes. And so we had an increase there because we take owner surrenders. Yes. But I also like to educate people, you know, when their owner surrendering, what's the reason? And for these people, it was them losing their homes or the damage done by busted pipes or, you know, so be it out of their hands, not something that they would have made this commitment to, to this dog. And now all of a sudden they just want to give it up, which (laughs) happens a lot actually. But with that freeze, we had people lose their homes and we had a ton of owner surrenders come in. And I just like to guarantee people when they choose us that they're making the best choice for their pet. I go through our adoption process, our vetting process. You know, we don't just give the first person that says, I want that dog and has money here. And so in in the past year, I would say, thanks to the pandemic and then the couple of the natural disasters that we've had, it's been kind of fluctuating, you know, with, with the adoptions, they've stayed kind of steady, but our intake has increased and our donations have fallen. Yeah. You said a lot there. First of all, that you're a rescue that takes owner surrenders. I feel like that makes you an exception to the rule in a lot of ways. Because <laughs> I know just there are so many that are like, don't even ask. Like we pull from shelters, we take strays. That's what we do. Um, and right. certainly there's a big enough need there. I'm sure you, you're you not like asking people to surrender their animals. But I, I love what you're saying there is like a level of empathy to these people who are surrendering their animals because we don't want to make them out to be these like evil people who are like, who hate their animals. I think a lot of times it is a heartbreaking decision for them. So I love that level of empathy that you're talking about. And even more so, I mean, the fact that you are going through the adoption process with them so that they can feel comfortable, as comfortable as they can with surrendering their animal to you, knowing that they're going to find a loving home and not just like be put out to pasture or something. For sure. So something is something I really encourage to my owner surrenders or even my fosters. If I have longtime foster cares like Kiki with the broken back, once they move on to their homes, I always encourage the surrenderer or my fosters, if they feel that attachment, a piece of closure is writing a letter to the new adopter. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I own this dog. These are the things they like. I loved it so much. Here's my story. Here's my email. Please feel free to reach out at any time with updates. I've never had an adopter not do that. If that letter does follow the pet, because for the owner surrender, like I said, it's usually a really tough time for them. And so that closure is very important to let them know they made the right decision and there's comfort there. And so that letter really helps them get all their stuff out. And then for the adopter to reach out and say, hi, so sorry to hear about it. I actually had this happen about a month ago, someone who surrendered to me reached out and said, Hey, I'm so-and-so. Do you remember this pet? And I said, I do actually. And he said, well, the adopter reached out to me. and I'm just so happy to know that this pet is in a loving home and happy. And, and this person that surrendered had cancer and that's why they had to surrender. They couldn't take care of themselves anymore or their pets. And so they surrendered all their pets to me. And I've been able to provide updates with pictures and emails and this person personally reached out and it just, it gives the surrender or my fosters. Cause there's, you know, fosters get attached too. <laughs> it gives them that closure and that I'm in this and we're in the right journey and we're doing it the right way. And there's my closure to know that we're not just giving pets away. They're going into forever homes and there's comfort there in knowing, you know, that the end solution, you were a part of it, but also that it's the right solution. So happy you said that because I was sitting here thinking like, if I ever had to give away my pet, God forbid that ever happens. I think that in itself would be a really heartbreaking situation to have to give them up. But I think the back of my head, 
every day I would be wondering whether or not that pet was being cared for or if they were loved. I'm really happy you do that. That like really warms my heart. Just like the idea that like someone reaching out and being like, hey, like you did make the right decision. Your dog is perfectly fine. Because that would, I was like sitting here and I was thinking about it. And I was like, that would be a constant worry in my head probably every day after I made that decision. Right. Definitely. Yeah. And I could just, the people, you know, when they're surrendering, I see their faces and I see their children's faces. And what do you say? What do you say to make them feel better besides you're making the right choice? And here's how I can show you that. I can guarantee you that when they're adopted, I'll provide you proof that they were adopted and what type of family they're going to, what type of activity level they're having. I can show you all of that. But if you write this letter and you put your email on it, I can almost guarantee you that you'll receive an update from that family as well. And you'll find comfort and peace in knowing you did the right thing for your pet, even though it was so hard to do, it was the right choice. I love that. Absolutely. And it's, it is just such a thoughtful detail too. Cause I can only imagine like as an adopter, you're always wondering what their past was like, were they loved or were they just like basically thrown away in a lot of, and I think that is the assumption with a lot of these rescue animals is that they were just discarded. So knowing that they were loved and that someone gave everything they could and it just wasn't enough. And so they were forced to surrender. I mean, that is so remarkable. And it's also just like, it almost seems just like a level of customer service for these right. owner surrenders <laughs> that is <laughs> like yeah, unheard of. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think certainly, I mean, as a rescue, like I'm sure you're overwhelmed, overtaxed, you have limited time and resources, but to take the time to do that is is very exceptional. That's amazing. Now, I, I know you said too that like, for adopters, you don't just give an animal to the first person who can pay for them. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you can go through your adoption process a little bit, because I know that always is such a pain point for so many people who are trying to adopt and they're like, I tried to adopt and it was hard. And certainly it is hard compared to a pet store where... Oh, for sure. Don't care. You just pay the fee and walk mm-hmm. out. Yeah. You yeah. Pay the fee. What I do is we're located in South Texas and I'm pulling from the streets, from the shelters, owner surrenders. I get all them here at my hub, I fully vet them. And then I work with several different rescues. All of my adoptions are done in Colorado. I don't do any adoptions in Texas for multiple reasons. One, we're already over pet populated. Anyone that wants a pet can go to a local kill shelter and save a life. If you're looking for a specific type of pet, I will point you in the right direction. I will hook you up with the rescue that has it. I will tell you this shelter is the place to go. I just personally, and with our organization, we will not do it because I feel like we're recontributing to the problem that we have here. When in Colorado, they don't have that problem. They have responsible pet ownerships, everyone's spayed and neutered, stricter state laws. I mean, I tease the animals when uh, we take them and tell them they're going to live a better life than I did because it's literally like a heaven to them. They go up there and they're, they're treated like family as they should be. And it's not just this home or that home that has that mentality. It's the state. I mean, it's just a wonderful state for them. So what we do is we fully vet them here and then we personally drive them to Colorado for adoption. And our adoption process consists of an application. We review the application. It's very strict. It asks, you know, do you have a fenced yard, which we do require pretty much for all dog adoptions. However, there are some people that live in apartments and I understand that, you know, not everyone in their life is going to own a home. And so if you apply for a specific dog and I think it needs a fenced yard, I'm going to talk to you and say, Hey, look, I really don't feel like this pet is a fit for your application, but I do have this other pet or I can find you one. I don't want you to lose hope because you applied for this one and I don't feel it's the right fit. I just don't want to set the animal up for failure or yourself. We want both parties to succeed. And so through the application, you have the the fence question and then just, you know, your activity level, if you're applying for a lab, I'm going to want you to hike. I'm going to want you to swim. I'm going to want you to go to the lake, you know, things like that. If you're, if you're applying for a Mastiff, I'm not going to expect you to have that level of activity. We have that. And then we have our home check where we visually inspect your home. There's actually a lot of common plants that are poisonous to cats and dogs that people don't know. So during your home visit, we're walking through and we're saying, Hey, that plant, you can't have it. Unfortunately, it's, poisonous to the cat or poisonous to the pet. And we kind of educate you on why and the importance. You have a laptop and you have the cords hanging down. I'm going to say, you know, hey, you're adopting a puppy. 
that's who you're applying for. I need you to think this through those shoes out, those kids toys. And then we actually walk through your backyard and look at your fence line as well to make sure there's no easy escape for the animal that you're applying for, or that it's too short, depending on the specific dog that you're applying for. For cats, we don't allow doggy doors because we don't allow outside cats. There's just too many deaths and bad things that happen to cats that are outside in Colorado. There's a lot of wildlife, for instance, that you wouldn't expect. So with those things, once we do the application and the home check, then we do the initial meet and greet. But we don't move forward unless we feel like it's the right fit. We know these dogs to a T. We know these cats to a T. We know what they want. We know their activity level, if they want kids in the house or if they don't. They want another dog or they don't. And we don't settle. So if we have one application and just one for that dog, we're going to wait for another one if it's not the right fit. Because at the end of the day, like I said, we want success for both parties. We don't want you to go out of your way and adopt this dog when we know it won't work. But we also don't want to put the dog through that either. We only want to rescue them once. And so that's the initial rescue. And then after that, we want to make sure we send them on there forever and we're confident and we know that that's their forever. I love that. I love that you ask activity level because I feel like that's such a huge, huge part of pet ownership. And I feel like a lot of people that aren't necessarily in those heartbreaking situations where they have to surrender a pet because of something financially or anything like that, there are those cases in which people will surrender their pets because perhaps they're becoming too destructive in the home or they're acting out or they're having like some sort of behavioral issues because they're not meeting that requirement of activity. One of my friends that I used to work with, she just adopted a German shepherd, like husky mix. And she was freaking out because she couldn't understand why the dog had so much energy. I like that you have that initial conversation because that is a really big portion of, or a really big part of, of that relationship and how it's going to, how it's going to go long-term. I just know that's a huge issue. So I really, really love that. That's really great. Yeah. It's definitely setting up for success for both parties. I mean, like Huskies, people don't know going in. And so that's another question on our application. Do you know this breed? Have you ever owned this breed? You know, because when it comes to Huskies or German Shepherds or Bull Terriers, you know, you want to make sure that they're either educated or I have no problem with the first time pet owner going in for one of those. But I also want to talk and make sure you understand this breed, but you're also open to training. If you have problems, you know, that we're already talking about training. It's not something that It's a what if we're going in knowing it's going to be needed for this specific dog. I mean, that's mentioned on our application as well, because we we want to set them up for success. And so I do think that uh, education when it comes to breed and um, exercise level is very important. Definitely. And more than that, though, I think what was so interesting of what you said is that you're having this conversation with these people. Like, so if they're saying they're, they're in an apartment, it doesn't totally just disqualify them and they just go in like the circular file, filing cabinet. <laughs> it's like, there's that conversation where that you're like, I'm con- I have concerns. And then they can come back and say like, oh no, you don't understand. I do this or I, they can have that, that back and forth with you so that it becomes clear. Like if they know that they're walking in with like eyes wide open or, or maybe they do need uh, to uh, like adjust their expectations and their choice basically. I love that she talked about plants too, because I, I recently found out that lilies are toxic. Yes. And I didn't know that for the longest time. I wish someone would have told me that because right. now I, not that I have lilies in my house, but I would have felt like a doof. Well, I mean, a lot of normal bouquets <laughs> that you purchase from the store are going to have one or two lilies in it for decor reasons. And so those are definitely plants that we look at. Or if there's bouquets sitting on the table, you know, we try to educate them. You might not have lilies now, but in the future, just so you do know, in case you didn't know, lilies and tulips, you know, that if you're going for a cat, they're very, very deadly. So if we notice they're a plant person, because you can usually tell a plant person when you're walking through their home, you can see the succulents or the ivies and you just, you know, educate them and tell them you might not know and you may know, but either way, we're going to talk about it to make sure you do know now. Definitely. I know my foster's. The second I brought them in, they just totally disregarded all the toys I got them. And all they wanted to do was play with my hanging plants. And I was like, very lucky that I like looked them up and I was like, okay, you can play with that one. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was not going to be a way for them to stop playing with that plant. So I think that's, that's so interesting. It's especially interesting. So you, do you work with like another organization in Colorado or are you just like working dual out of two different states? So 
So I do partner directly with other rescues. The state of Colorado requires you to have a specific license. It's called PACFA. And so to operate as an animal rescue, you have to have your PACFA license. I have my PACFA transport license because we transport our animals to them. But then we do a transfer. So for my rescue, I'll transfer to the other rescue. And that's where we'll process the adoption through that specific rescue, which we're still very hands-on. You know, we're very much involved in the process. Um, the couple of rescues that I do work with, one of them's ran by my best friend. And so I actually post the animals on the website and process the applications and talk to all the people myself. And that's my way to adopt out the dogs there is through her. And so it's not my name on it, but for the purpose of having to have a separate license and I have the transport one, not the actual organization one to do that. So just out of curiosity, was she your best friend before all of this or did she become your best friend because you were working so much with her? She actually one day posted on Facebook for uh, transport help from a local kill shelter to the vet. And that's actually how I met her was I volunteered to do the transport. And then after that, I just followed her page. And anytime she needed something, I was there. And that was almost six years ago now. And so we've just been kind of inseparable when it comes to we rescue together and all of our animals, you know, I get them from down here. I take them to her. Our, we're in each other's lives, kids' lives. I mean, it's just, and it it was definitely because of animal rescue that we gained that friendship. Oh, that's amazing. I know we've heard a few times too about like a bunch of fosters who just become like best friends because everyone can kind of empathize with each other on like the very specific, because I think a lot of people who work in animal welfare can understand certain things, but I think there are certain pain points that only like a founder can really understand. So I love that, that you have that like connection and someone you can be like, oh, like people won't stop messaging me. <laughs> oh, for sure. Right. You can definitely vent and tell, I mean, when, you, when your phone doesn't, I guess the worst part is, is when people get upset when you say no. And I have to tell people daily, it's just me. I don't have fosters. I have two fosters. One that I call my emergency foster when all else fails, I have to call her. And she's not always a yes, but when she is, it's a lifesaver. And it's usually just one small dog that she takes. My other foster, she is a foster fail. So she's full at this point. So everybody else stays at my house. And I mean, we run sometimes from like 30 to 50 dogs at a time. And that doesn't include cats. I mean, we do the cats as well. And so when I tell someone, no, it's not because I'm being ugly or because I don't want to help you. And they get so upset. People get so angry. Like, well, I thought you were a rescue. I thought you saved animals. Well, I do. And that's literally what I'm doing. And that's why I have to say no. And so it's very, that is definitely something I'll call Tiffany and I'll say, oh my gosh, I just had this person get really upset with me. I mean, sometimes they say very ugly, hateful things. And I'm like, okay, well, here's what I can suggest to you. I don't have any other things I can offer, but I can definitely maybe suggest things that you can go and try, but I, my hands are tied. Yesterday, a cat was ran over on the highway and it pulled itself up to a restaurant and someone posted on Facebook. Unfortunately, I was in bed hurting. I'm pregnant and high risk. And so I have my days. And so I'm hurting in bed and I'm posting on Facebook. Someone, please go grab this cat for me. Anyone, anyone, anyone. Finally, we found someone to take it to the vet. And then 30 minutes later, I have someone else calling me about another cat that was hit. And I was like, I, I can't because I got to focus on this one right now. I don't know what's going to happen with it, but it's definitely going to be an expensive one that we need to focus on. And it would be irresponsible for me to take on another case, not knowing what this one holds. And so that one ended up having a broken tail, a broken hip, a broken leg, head trauma. And we were hoping that we would be able to save it and do the surgery. Unfortunately, it passed this morning, but that's an instance where those other people were upset because I wouldn't save that cat, but I was in the middle of saving another cat. And so I feel like that's definitely something that only the inner circle could understand. You know, you, you call them and you tell them, well, this is, this is what happened today. Or unfortunately you're scrolling through Facebook and you see EU today, EU today, and you can't save them all, but you want to pick one that you can. And that part tears at you. And I mean, who else do you talk to besides rescue people about that. Other people aren't going to understand that I had to 
choose one out of 10 to say that we're going to be euthanized that day. Truly. It's such a heartbreaking thing. And I can't even imagine like how you make that choice. And I think at a certain point, I would assume you just do. (laughs) And that's all you can do is like, I have a number and that's what I'm going to stick to. And I'm just going to save what I can and move on because what other option is there? No, but I mean, I'm I'm so happy that you have that connection because I do feel like, especially in such an emotionally tolling line of work, it is so hard. Speaking of which though, I know you said that you got all into this on your drive to work one day. So are you still working another job? I am not. Rescue takes literally my whole entire day, whole entire night. I've considered getting a a separate cell phone (laughs) to stop my personal from ringing. But it's just like, you know, today I woke up, went straight to the vet, had to deal with the family we just took in yesterday and then headed to go get stuff from Tractor Supply for kennels and then went to the bank to get a check to pay the construction worker that's working on our shelter. And then I come home and then I got I have my one-year-old son. And so there's just no time in the day for a job. And it's funny that you say that because I actually went to school for EMT and graduated top medic and did it for a little bit and realized I couldn't save animals and do that at the same time. And so I stopped and made the life decision that animals are what needs me. And that's what I'm going to dedicate my life to. And so at that point, I've realized I can't work and run rescue like I'm doing. I'm sure if I stepped back and didn't intake as much as I do, that I would be able to. But with the intake that we do and the cases we take, there's just no possible way. I mean, I believe that 100%. That's the number you're (laughs) talking about. I'm like, even if they weren't medical cases, just between like feeding activity and like cleaning, like I'm like, that's your entire day. <laughs> and that's without a one-year-old. So that's amazing. And I mean, it's, it's, it is incredible to hear you, like your dedication that like, this is all on your personal phone in your personal home. I mean, it's very much like your life. I know we've heard from a few other people that, that it can't not be your life at a certain point. Like it's just, it becomes like your whole being in a lot of ways. I'm wondering if if there are other things you do, especially as a pregnant woman, to kind of care for yourself. So for, for caring for myself, that doesn't really exist. I make it to the spa like once in a blue moon to have like my toes done. <laughs> but the pregnancy is actually infertility and so is my last one. And so it t- takes a lot out of me and treatment wise and everything. So Self-care doesn't really exist in that area. The the pregnancy exists and then the baby exists and then rescue exists. So there's not really time to take out of the day to say, hey, Megan, go take a breather. I was actually in the hospital a week ago, admitted in the hospital, and I couldn't get off my phone. And that's actually when I intook Sasha, the one with the where the owner said they were going to euthanize her if some someone didn't take her. I was in the hospital bed doing that. Like I I can't stop. I can't. There's, I mean, I'm literally in the hospital, the bed while they're trying to get an IV going because I'm so dehydrated, looking at my phone, like, no, she can't die. This is a perfectly okay dog. I must take her. Somebody, please pick her up. I'm in the hospital. And so, I mean, it's, you know, in the hospital, it's at 1 a.m. when my phone's going off. It just, it it doesn't stop. Oh my gosh, girl. We gotta, we gotta get you a spa day or something. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Confiscate your phone. I know, <laughs> but but have someone man it or something so that everything keep, right. Right, keep running on time. Everything you're saying, I mean, it's it's really remarkable because I think this is all why we what we try to emphasize to people like, hey, when you're donating to an animal rescue, it's like that money is going three times as far when you donate to an animal rescue than if you went anywhere else. I mean, people like have devoted their entire lives and so they make things work. Really incredible. Obviously, you've got a lot going on in your life. So I'm wondering if you have any like upcoming goals or I mean, the world is opening up ever so slightly. So I'm wondering if you have like some transport schedules or something. So we actually go to Colorado once a month and we take anywhere from 60 to 80 animals at a time, cats and dogs. And right now, currently what we're doing with our animal rescues, we're actually building a shelter on my property. We have the building up, we have the walls in. Uh, We are now working on painting 
and having the, we had the concrete slabs laid for the outdoor kennels. Currently I have everyone housed inside this shelter that is AC heater. And I go in and I clean all the kennels by hand daily. The ultimate goal is to have inside outside runs where they can go in and out and potty. And we're making artificial grass spots instead of concrete so that they can kind of have a place to relax and it not be concrete. Cause no matter how much I tell myself that even though, Hey, Megan, they're alive and they're not euthanized. I still want them to have that luxury life while they're with me. So we're working on the shelter right now and that will help us provide the accommodations while we need to before transport. But also when my next baby comes, I won't be able to be on the floor scrubbing. I need to have it to where I can go in and spray it down with the water hose and poop scoop. And right now that's where we're at in the stages of that. The transport hasn't stopped. Even through COVID, there was a couple of months where the state restrictions stopped us, but it didn't last long. We continued. And so I would say the shelter is definitely our biggest goal right now is raising money to complete that. And that way there's no halt in the rescue and the saving these animals because like I said, I don't have fosters. And so when someone reaches out, I don't pick up my phone and say, well, let me see if I can find a foster. It let me see if I have a kennel open that we can place them in because before my current son, who's one, we were actually housing the 40 to 50 inside my house. And we decided there was no way that could happen with the baby crawling around. And so that's when we started working on the shelter because we knew that it was something that we I wanted to do. And it wouldn't be able to be done without that, especially since we don't have the fosters to help us with our intake numbers. And so future goal, finish that shelter, have it completely ready to go um, in the next month or two is the ultimate goal for sure for that. And then continue the, the transports and not really slow down. I mean, even when the baby comes, I don't want to slow down. But <laughs> oh my gosh, I feel oh like gosh. you have more energy than like a normal person. 100%. I know. Cause that is even like the idea that you're like, I have a one-year-old and you're already like, let's have another baby. Like that a one-year-old still requires a lot of care. <laughs> I'm wondering if, if he is a huge animal lover already or. Oh my gosh. It's, it is in. I don't know if it's just so strong in my blood or what, but he gets so, ex if, if he's like upset, screaming, crying, take him to the shelter. He's good. Screaming, crying. Let's go inside the vet. He's good. He's like, Hey, look, there's a kid and I want to hold it. Hey, look at these puppies. Or I'll tell him, look at the puppy. And he looks everywhere until he finds the puppy. And he's like, Oh my God, it's a puppy. And so I just, at his age, it's really hard to teach him no face. And that's kind of what we're working on. You know, don't grab the face, don't get in the face. But he is super gentle. And I definitely think he understands and give it like another year and he's gonna be my little poop scooper. But um, <laughs> my extra hands that I need, there they are. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely 100% an animal lover. Oh my gosh, that is so sweet. And I love that it's like gonna be like kind of ingrained in him, like this giving back, this helping. and. I mean, just in general, like I think learning, <laughs> I know my little niece is like struggling with like the gentle, <laughs> like she's a little bit intense sometimes. And so I think he's going to be very, very considerate and gentle. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, I definitely try to. We just took in a mama and baby kittens and he was so excited, overwhelmed with happiness. He was just like jumping and screaming and trying to grab the kennel and it's one of the soft kennels and the mama cat was like what's going on and I'm like Willie calm down Willie you can touch them give them just a second I'll pass you the kittens it's okay and he'll step back and like just wait and then until I hand him the kittens and then he's good to go basically like as excited as we all get about like kittens I know right <laughs> yes he learned very early <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh that's amazing well so with so many animals in your home? This might be a silly question, but I don't know. Do you have like any animals that you consider your personal animals or are they like all fosters? We have five. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> we okay. have three personal dogs and two personal cats. All my cats, Pickles, she's almost nine. She was my first cat. I bet that was my first animal owning as an adult. And then um, when me and my significant other got that together, we got a dog together. She was actually saved off of a back road that was dumped. 
and she's eight. And so those are our two oldest. And then between there, we've kind of collected others. Thor, who is my chow chow, he came from a litter that he was born hairless and people dumped him because he had no hair and looked like a naked mole rat. So we took him in knowing we were going to keep him as a pet. We were like, oh, our other dog needs a a sibling. She didn't. She's a diva. She doesn't need any help. (laughs) And then the, the third dog was a rescue that was found on a back road here by our house. That was a blue healer that was just so cute and fluffy and small and tiny. And I couldn't let her go. And she should have went into rescue, but she kind of stayed. And so we have five personal that definitely Hazel being the oldest one. She's the diva. She, she's jealous of my son. She's jealous of the other dogs. She just doesn't want to exist in the rescue world. She would prefer it just be us, but she deals with it. And so that kind of makes you wonder sometimes, you know, with like rescue families or people that run rescue, how do they feel with all these fosters coming and going? And you just got to make them feel extra special sometimes, you know, give them the extra love or the extra treat sometimes or let them lick the tuna bowl, you know, (laughs) (laughs) things like that to just let them know that they're still special and they still exist in a, a world where we still love them. And I think that's important too. It's so funny to think, cause I think that so many people think the way you do of like, Oh, you need a brother. You need a sister. Yeah. And oh yeah. <laughs> and that's what I, we were talking to a rescue the other day and they were saying something like that as well. Like all their personal pets are like, get these random dogs out of here. Like they're like not interested at all. So we do have some kind of fun questions. So Sydney, you want to take it away? Yeah, definitely. So the first question that we have is, and, and you can kind of pick whichever animal this pertains to best. but. <laughs> If your dog or cat were president, what would be the first thing they did? Oh my gosh. Well, Pickles, who is an absolute not nice kitty, she is the one that's like, hey, I'm going to come up to you and let's talk, but don't touch me because if you touch me, I'm going to bite you. But you can touch me now. Oh, you touch me? I'm biting you. She just <laughs> doesn't know manners. She has no manners. She definitely is like, she has to know you. And even then she still doesn't like you. So I would say, uh, pickles would make some very strict people laws and cats would run the world for sure. If she was in charge, she would make sure cats ruled everything. Oh, I love that. Go pickles. You do you lady. (laughs) And then this one is If you have, I know there's like a lot of rescues and shelters out there, but I'm wondering if you have a specific rescue that you kind of have like a crush on or that you sort of admire a lot. You know, I always tell myself like when we're transporting or I look at my numbers, I feel like my numbers are small. But one of the rescues I work with is Big Bones Canine Rescue in Windsor, Colorado. And holy moly, are they like rescue on steroids or what? Because they're (laughs) just like, rolling out the adoptions, intaking from Oklahoma, Texas, California. I mean, and it's strictly volunteer ran. And the owner of the rescue is definitely like my superhero. Like I would love to be her one day and run what she runs and do and accomplish the things that she does because what they do is incredible. And the amount of animals they save is, I mean, it's just astonishing what they do with their organization. Oh, I love that. I love good rescue support because I feel like, and this isn't always the case, but I, I do think that there is a little bit of separation with some rescues and shelters and things like that. They like to more so isolate themselves or maybe it becomes competition. So I, I love to hear that there's good, like just unified animal welfare relationships out there where rescue support rescues. And, you know, we can admire things about other ones and aspire to be like them without feeling any lesser or things like that. The competition, that statement is so strong in the rescue world. I mean, there's just, unfortunately, most of us are women and, you know, we all have our hormones and our own opinions and some of us are very strong headed and we stick with it. But I mean, for my experience, I've been bullied a lot uh, by all of my local rescues surrounding me. I don't have any partnerships with any of them. They don't support me sending animals out of state the hatred things they've said, there's been plenty of times where I've sat down and cried and said, I'm done with rescue because of it. And I think that actually exists a lot in the rescue world. You can see it on Facebook. I mean, talking to rescues, you can ask them and they'll tell you, you know, experiences that they've had, that they've been bullied or 
they've thought about quitting because of the way that other people in rescue world treat them. And we already deal with a lot on the public side. And then to have people that are on your side supposed to be attacking you as well. Yeah. Or even criticizing something that they don't necessarily know or a situation that they weren't a part of and things like I do, I, that does happen a lot. It's strange too, because when I first started working with rescues, I didn't realize that that was a thing. I didn't think, you know, competition or for lack of a better word, like pettiness was a, was a big part of it. So it was, it was a bit eye opening. It kind of makes me just want to be nicer to everyone, especially rescue because of, because of what they go through, not even with, you know, donor communities or outside communities, but in rescue itself and with other shelters and with other rescues. Yeah. It's, it's just so unfortunate because I mean, coming in and, and having those things and listening to the other rescues, talk about other rescues. And it's like, we all have the same goal, don't we? We're all at the end trying to save animals and you have your way and I have my way. And yeah, we can coexist. You, you need, you're still saving the dogs you save and I'm saving the ones I save. So we don't need to fight over one. There's plenty more that need to be saved. And that's actually something that occurs a lot, you know, in shelters when animals need to be tagged, um, you have several rescues going for the same dog and it's like, step back. There's 10 others on the euthanasia list today. Let's go for another one. And so that, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, but extremely common. Well, and it's especially heartbreaking because when you consider the line of like work, it is of like abused, neglected animals, and what's pushing so many people out of the field are the is the people element and like that that element of like the business side. I mean, that should 100% not be the case. I mean, Lord, if you can handle like these really hard situations and medical cases and like humanity kind of at its worth, worst on that end, I mean, everything else should be smooth sailing from there. Ugh, it's awful. This last question is a, it's a little bit harder, <laughs> but it's, if you have one life motto, what would it be? I like to I actually was telling as someone on Facebook, I'd probably say it at least once a day, but my motto is we can't save them all, but we save who we can. That's how you get through looking at the euthanasia list. You know, there's 10 on it, but I know I can save two. And so I got to think about the two that I can save the mom and, and puppies that we took yesterday they're all in the hospital right now and it's like we'll save who we can they all came off of a animal cruelty case that we're going to be euthanized and so we took them and just got to keep that's literally what gets me through every day in rescue because without telling myself that and without that being a motto you do drown yourself in thinking you want to save them all because I mean in reality obviously we do but reality is we can't and so we save who we can. And that's, that's something I tell my team. I tell volunteers, you know, cause I always, how do you do it? How do you choose? How do you, how do you go on? How do you see these things? The mama that we took, I mean, they are just covered in scabs and blood and mange and they were owned. They had owners that kept them like that. And they're like, how do you talk to these people? Well, honestly, I sweet talk them so I can get their animals and so I can save them. But at the end of the day, I just, I do it because I know I can save some and I can change the world for those few. And that's what matters. When I go to bed at night is I know I did what I could and I did it the right way. And we saved lives that day. And that's what's important. I love that. I think it's a really good mental foundation to have too, because I mean, when you talk to rescues, yes, they it's like you see the you see the faces of the ones you save and you get to be a part of their story. But a lot of the times they're like, I see the faces of the ones that I had to say no to. So I, I think it's a really good, it's just a really good way to think about it because you will drown yourself. You, you, I mean, you're going to feel sorrow every single day thinking about the ones that you didn't save versus focusing on the good that you're doing and the ones that you are saving. I think that that's something that anyone that gets into rescue needs to learn first because going in, like I said, when I was educating myself about the kill shelters and everything, I wanted to pull everything off the youth list. I didn't have a plan for it, but I knew I had to do it. And now being in it for a couple of years, you learn, you, you just can't do that. It's, it's mentally impossible, physically impossible. And with the constant demand of animals needing to be saved, you just, you can't. And so you, you have to learn early that that's just impossible. 
Well, even like financially too, they say, I mean, you can save 10, but can you get those 10, the adequate medical care? Can you raise the donations? Can you spend that time that's needed to rehabilitate that animal and get it into a right home? You know, versus, I mean, maybe you can do that for one animal, like almost like don't spread yourself too thin because then the animals kind of pay in the end. So I just, it's a really, you're, you're totally right. I do think that's a really great foundation that everyone, everyone should pay mind to when they start getting into rescue. I don't think people realize financially what goes in it. That's a argument that we probably have weekly is why are your adoption fees so high? Well, do you know what we do for these animals? And even if this specific animal didn't have the full extent injury of this one, this animal's paying for that one. And so it's, it's definitely an education point there for sure to, for people to understand, like we're feeding them, we're housing them, we're cleaning them, we're vaccinating, we're spaying and neutering, flea and tick prevention, testing that goes on, fecals that go on. And then you have the ones with the broken backs or the broken pelvises. And these might've cost us a thousand, but then you have the broken ones that cost us 10,000. And so, yeah, our adoption fees are going to stay that across the board because we wouldn't stay afloat if we didn't, we would drown. And then you also have to balance. You get that call about that broken one, but you just took one. Should you take that one? Would it be the right thing to do? Could you handle it financially, physically? If you can't, then you don't want to accept it. And then you're failing it in the end. And even though you want to help, you just have to step back and know when financially you can and can't do it. It's hard. It's very hard to say no, because a lot of people will even say, why is the vet treating it? Doesn't the vet care that it's dying? They have bills too. They don't run for free. And we can't give free treatment as a rescue. And we can't receive pro bono all the time. Obviously we get discounts, but then the vet world wouldn't run, you know? And so, I mean, it boils down to a lot of people not understanding the financial side of it too. And then going in as a rescuer, upbeat, so ready to save the world. And then smack vet bill, smack vet bill and, you know, supplies and food. And you just don't know what you're getting yourself into until you do. And then sometimes it's a, a learn as you go. I definitely have learned as I go. I mean, when it comes to raising funds, if we are high on our vet bill end, I'll be doing bake sales or fundraisers or, you know, stuff on the side to raise money for the vet bills. And then what we don't raise for the rescue, then we pull out of our personal pockets. And so money is just something that is a constant circle, always needed in rescue. And I feel like people that go in operating rescues don't see that. People that come in to adopt don't see that. And then the people that are watching from the outside, looking at just seeing the animal suffering or the conditions they're in, they're not understanding the financial side either. And so I do think all parties, it's very important to take a look at that. It's just so true. I love what you're saying. And truly, we admire the work you do. I mean, I mean, you can't, you can't save them all, but certainly, I mean, this is where everyone starts with any big project, right? Like if you want to do something big, you have to start with a single step. So we're so amazed by what you're doing. Um, and clearly you have more energy than all of us. So um, I feel like we just need to get you some extra resources, Lord. But thank you so much for chatting with us. And um, I know you probably have like six dogs right now begging for your attention. So, <laughs> so we'll talk soon. Okay. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you so much. It was so wonderful talking to Megan today. She's so inspiring. Everything from opening her home to doing all these amazing things for her community and also connecting statewide in Colorado as well. If you want to learn a little bit more about saving animal lives 24-7, you can check our show notes or our blog. And as always, remember to rate, like, and subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow Cuddly on all social media accounts at We Love Cuddly. That's C-U-D-D-L-Y. Thanks, guys.